and I want you to introduce one of the most amazing Writers Conference people. I noted her when she was just a pipsqueak. She, her long hair she wore down, and it was very, very long. And I think she still has all of it, although she's tidied it up for uh, her current age. She has a brilliant mind. She is the most amazing human I've ever seen, and she doesn't need to sleep or eat real food. <laughs> Please welcome Lorelei Armstrong. Welcome, welcome. Grace tells me that most of the questions that were called into the conference were about what I call murder, mystery, and mayhem. Apparently 104% of you are all writing in one of these genres. And it has been described as the extreme of character motivation. So we have some very motivated writers here who would like to tell you about their books. And afterward, we're all going to go downstairs. They're going to be signing and selling their books. So you readers will be following us down there. Uh, about 10 minutes from the end, we're going to open up for questions. There will be a microphone going around. And I'll repeat the question for you, but let's get to our writers. Uh, I promised Lita here that I would start at the other end. And they're going to introduce themselves and the book they have for us today. <laughs> what, what was the question? <laughs> Who are this you? is what happens when you start at the wrong end of the table. So, uh, what, 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 I introduced myself? Is that basically the idea? Yourself okay. and your book, please. Okay, um, so my name is Gar Anthony Haywood. Um, I've been writing crime and uh, mystery fiction for too many years to count. And my first book was published in 1988. So I think I have 13 uh, genre novels uh, to my credit. A lot of short stories published uh, in magazines and anthologies. Um, it's what I love to read growing up and it's what I've learned to write uh, and love as well. So my, my most recent novel, though, is, is out of genre. Um, it's something that is quite different from what I've read, written before. Um, it's in Things Unseen, and, and essentially what this is, I, I've struggled to really describe it, but it's like a, uh, a Christian-themed thriller um, that you can't really describe any better than that. It's, it, and it, it's, got a, it's got a hard edge to it, so you know, when people say Christian fiction, they, they immediately think of... Um, you know, G-rated material, and this is by no means G-rated. Um, if for no other reason than that, um, I have this tendency to make people talk the way they really talk, and use the language they really use. And uh, in your conventional Christian novel, that's not the case. So it's kind of jarring if you're if you pick this book up thinking it's going to convert you immediately to a life of uh, of quiet, you know, Christian faith, and then you. Somebody drops the F-bomb, you're like, what, where did that come from? What's going on? Um, so anyway, that, that's the best way to describe this novel. I'm very, very proud of it. It basically asks uh, the question, you know, what, what, do, you, what do four people do uh, when confronted with a, an actual miracle? Um, you know, how do you deal with that if you believe? How do you deal with it if you don't? Uh, what do you make of it? And how does it change your, your life moving forward uh, after that? So that's me. I want to buy your book. I'm Marilisa Denick, and I'm the author of eight books, all were nonfiction until the last one came around, and now it's my first fiction. So part of me feels like I'm sitting out there because this is 
the first one. You remember, some of you, how it felt like when you had your first novel that you had written? It's very exciting, it really is. So uh, I came here first, I think, in 1976, and it made all the difference in my professional life and my personal life, too, really. But it was just the right place at the right time. I had written a novel, um, and uh, I brought it here, and I got an agent first day, and uh, he sold my book to write for McGraw Hill, and life took off, and lots of good things, and Barbara Walters, and yay, that was fun. But uh, now I'm back to being the, the writer and not the, the run around town talking about it. So I haven't talked about my new book yet, and I have to tell you that this is it, right there. And it's called Lying Still. And I'll read you one paragraph. That's all you need to know about Marilee Sedenik is the author of eight books. Lying Still is her first novel. Her book, The Right Brain Experience, and What Program to Free the Powers of Your Imagination. They came with their sirens, their cameras, and their incessant questions. The voice of the detective was cold. The only word Leo remembered was murder. Lying Still is an integrating story about the dangerous relationship between a psychiatrist, Dr. Mark Fowler, and a family of three women. One is the woman he loved, one is the woman he killed, and one has a journal that could destroy him. There it goes. It's on sale downstairs, and we can say that because we have a right to it. Okay. Yes? That's not page of sassy. That's why we're here. That's why we're here. There you go. Well, I don't know. I guess that's it. Yes. That's okay. <laughs> Wrong microphone. Um, I'm Deborah Holt Larkin, and uh, this is my book. It is a true crime memoir, uh, A Lovely Girl, The Tragedy of Olga Duncan, and The Trial of One of California's Most Notorious Killers. Um, this, whole, this story started right here in Santa Barbara. Olga Duncan was kidnapped from her um, apartment on Garden Street, November 17, 1958, and uh, she, her, her body was eventually found out here on Casitas Road. And this became one of the biggest stories in the United States. Press came from all over the country, it was in Time Magazine, um, and uh, some of you may have heard of it, it's, they, they refer to the murder as Maude Duncan. Um, so when people were asking me when I was writing this book, so Debbie, what is your book about? And I finally started saying, well, think Dave Barry meets Anne Rule in Fargo. Because I was the daughter of the crime reporter who covered this, this, um, this murder case. And he also wrote a Derek Dave Barry style column that appeared in the same paper about our family. And as a 10 year old, I know it sounds strange, but I became obsessed with this, with Olga Duncan's disappearance. And it is also uh, a very meticulously researched true crime story that is woven into the, uh, the chapters about the family. Um, it is a fascinating case. It is really, it's, it's murder, it's um, bizarre characters, and it is uh, bumbling killers. So, any more later. <laughs> Hello everyone, I'm Lita Sedaris, and I'm the author of the Southern California Mystery Series. Book number six in my series will be released this fall. 
It wasn't that long ago that I was sitting there, and I still feel like a newbie, despite six mysteries, a picture book, and a few short stories, but it's very exciting to be here. My series is based, loosely based, on my former life working as a movie studio attorney, um, kind of like my heroine, Corey Locke, except without the homicides. I made my heroine far more interesting than I was, She's the daughter of a well-known Los Angeles private investigator, and together they cracked a few high-profile cases. But when the first book in my series starts, Murder and Other Unnatural Disasters, her father's out of the picture, and she's sworn off doing any PI work. But she happens to get blackmailed and gets sucked right in. So she begins in the first book as a reluctant sleuth, and by the time you come to my latest book, Gambling with Murder, she's all in. In fact, She's thinking of leaving her movie studio job and starting her own PI agency. And she has a different uh, batch of sidekicks that help her along the way. And in this book, a sidekick kind of drifts in because she needs her, and it's her mother. And her mother has been very much against her doing any PI work because of what happened to her father. But all of a sudden, when the need arises, her mother's now all in, and the dynamics are a little bit uh, sketchy, a lot of shenanigans go on. And this book, again, the latest in my series, Gambling with Murder, happens to be set in a little town that maybe many of you are familiar with, and that is Santa Barbara. Okay, thank you. We've heard a little bit about the next question from Deborah, I know. I want to ask you a little bit, starting at this end this time, sorry, uh, about how this specific book came about. If it's in a series, how did this idea originate? Um, just the overall history of the book, even how long did it take you to, to execute it, if you don't mind the phrase. My very first book took me about two years because I didn't think I could do it. And just writing a mystery is what I read, but it was such a daunting task, all those twists and turns and red herrings. But I got two boosts in the beginning of my career, and that is I won a scholarship to attend a big conference, and I hadn't really written anything up to that point except for a few chapters to win that scholarship. But when I arrived, everyone thought I could write. So I thought, well, maybe I can. But I had nothing to give to anyone at that point. So fast forward, nearly two years later, I finished that first book. And about, about five months prior to finishing it, I submitted it to another contest. It was, the mystery, it was the Helen McCloy Mystery Writers of America Scholarship Award. And that had a money award with it, too, attached. And I happened to win that, too. So I thought, you know, I could do this. I think I probably would have been able to write it without those scholarships, just like all of you can, but it, it was a little bit um, helpful in helping me find a publisher, which I found um, right after I finished my book. I happened to send it out, a small press editor contacted me and said she loved it, it was clever and funny, and so I signed with them. I signed with the first person who said yes, and I know you shouldn't say that, but being a lawyer, I was comfortable with the agreement, and um, again, they were so enthusiastic, I couldn't say no. But I was going to tell you another little story about a book that it took me 20 years to publish. And I wrote this just about 20 years ago when my kids were toddlers. And it was a picture book called The Cookie-Eating Fire Dog. It's about a naughty Dalmatian who won't help the fire officers. All he wants to do is eat cookies. And I got a bite right away from a big publisher right then, but they eventually passed. Fast forward 20 years, the publisher of my first book that we're opening a children's book arm, and guess who had a book ready to go? And so ultimately, it took a long time, so you've got to hang in there, but you never know what you'll publish. 
Um, this book came about because I have essentially been shadowed by Olga Duncan's story for my entire life. Like I said, I was 10 years old when she vanished from her apartment. A month later, her body was found out here on Casitas Pass Road. And I had this constant source of information because my father was covering the case and he was not your typical 1950s father. He wasn't uh, an Aussie uh, Nelson or um, somebody like that. He had a, a really no filter, no boundaries, and he, he was fascinated with this case and he talked about it around the dining room table constantly. Um, and so I was intrigued. I wanted to know. And it's also uh, because I was able, to, this book was able to come about because there were 5,000 pages of transcripts. Everybody testified, all the um, defendants testified, gave their story. I was fortunate enough to be able to um, get a hold of the unpublished memoir of the district attorney who uh, prosecuted this case. It was just for those years that he was involved. So I had a lot of insight that I could use um, in, in telling his story and what he was thinking about while he was uh, prosecuting. Um, and it, it, it was, um, I wanted to say something about the kind of fear that gripped the community to, to understand a little why this, this stuck with me so long. I was recently speaking uh, to an audience and during the question and answer period, a woman who grew up in Santa Barbara raised her hand and she said, you know, I was 14 years old when this case took place and it was kind of like, it was like OJ. It was OJ on steroids. Everybody in this town, everybody in the community uh, was talking about, about this case. So um, I, I just think that the real reason it happened is I wanted to be a writer and I thought I would fictionalize it but it's stranger than fiction. So I ended up writing the true crime story. Yes, uh, just a, a bit about how this book came about. This is a new, a new venture for you. It was a rather unusual way. Uh, a friend came over and we were talking. She had the LA Times in her hand and she said, look at this story. And I read the story and one sentence stuck out to me. And there were five words in the sentence. And they were so moving to me. I was just, and you know, I said to, to my friend, uh, you know, it's, I've just never heard anything like this. You think it's real? She said, oh yes, it's real. And so it was, um, I said, well, it would make a great novel. And she said, why don't you write it? I said, okay, so I did. <laughs> and it was, oh, if I tell you the five words, you won't buy the book. <laughs> if you, <laughs> if, no, it's a tease. It's really, it's it's really that it, the, the the killer is he does it on page one, so it's not that. It's a psychological suspense story, and the five words just haunted me. And the, the I wrote the book, um, and inspired by her, she was a psychiatrist, and she said, "Well, this really is material for the book." So I wrote it, and that's when I got my agent at here at the conference. Way back in, I think it was in 70, 1976, and he sold a few books for me, but he didn't sell that one because it wasn't ready. So now, um, it got lost. That was the thing because we moved cities, and when I looked for the manuscript, it just wasn't there. 
And it was the days before computers, so there was no computers to save it. And I hadn't used carbon paper over every sheet. There was no way to finish that book, so I went on and wrote other books. But it was just about a year and a half ago that my son-in-law came and said, I found the book. And it had been in storage marked memorabilia. <laughs> so I rewrote it. I have a little different style now than I had in 76. But I got so excited about it. And Susie Cronin came back there and was so inspirational that I just loved her enthusiasm and, and her comments. They were very valuable to me. So anyway, it's, um, it's now been rewritten and totally added characters, lost some others, but the theme is definitely the five words really made the difference. Yeah. And so now, what? No, I'm just I'm admiring a master at work. <laughs> <laughs> Sweetie Pete. They, they have to buy it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yes, for you. Let me just start by saying, if I write five pages of something, I'm not losing. Okay, <laughs> I, I'll know where those five pages are, or I'll die trying to find them. Um, so, uh, basically, two things uh, were the uh, the inspiration for this particular book, and, and one is the Twilight Zone. I grew up an avid Twilight Zone fan, and I, and I know that there's millions and millions of us. Um, but people that may not be completely familiar with the show or why it was so popular is because um, Rod Serling was a genius. I mean, let's just let's start with that. And those stories, by and large, dealt with average people dealing with extraordinary circumstances that they cannot explain, inexplicable circumstances. And so almost every story dealt with the question of what the heck is going on? and how, it, how are these characters going to uh, come out in the end when we find out what, it, what it in fact is actually happening. So I've always been uh, intrigued by those types of stories and I haven't really told one like that before. So that was one thing I wanted to write a book on that kind, with that kind of idea in mind. And then the second thing was um, uh, I wanted to write a, an authentic Christian novel, meaning that uh, a story about a miracle that is, in fact, a miracle. It's not something that looks like a miracle, sounds like a miracle, tastes like a miracle. Uh, maybe God created it, maybe God didn't, maybe it's the aliens. Maybe. No, this, was, uh, this is a story about a God-given miracle and how four people in particular deal with it. So in, in a nutshell, what the plot of the story is that there's an eight-year-old boy who dies in a tragic car accident and his mother is uh, a firm believer who just cannot let him go. She can't live with his death. And so she essentially prays uh, emphatically every night of her life for six months. And at the end of six months, she goes into his bedroom uh, one night uh, and finds him in his bed uh, asleep like nothing ever happened. And what she finds out over the next several days is that the entire world uh, has been changed and, and erased to the extent that he, his death never happened. He never died. There was no car accident. He was never buried. Uh, there was no uh, you know, um, funeral for him, nothing. Uh, if you go to his school, he's got all the schoolwork up to date like he went to school last Friday. Um, so the entire world thinks that uh, he, did never, he never passed. 
but there are three other people that, like her, know they did die. And it's her, the little boy's father, the little boy's teacher who loved him like her own child, and the old man who, uh, who lost control of his car in the park and killed him. So these four people vividly remember every detail of this little boy being dead, but the rest of the world does not acknowledge that reality. So uh, the mother, of course, you know, to her understanding, she got what she asked for. She asked God to bring her son back, and she got him back. Not in the way she expected, but here he is back. The world's been changed so that she has her son back. Um, and he has no recollection of what happened either. Um, so the, again, the, the point is, it's a story about what do these four people do, like in a Twilight Zone episode, where they're confronted with the very real possibility or probability that God decided to answer this woman's prayer for some reasons, un unexplained, and bring her, this little boy back. What do you do with that knowledge if you believe in God? What do you do with it if you don't? What if you do with it if you think it's all a dream? How do you react to this new reality that you can no longer change? Um, so I wanted it to be a book of ideas. You know, I'm not, I'm not attempting to convert anybody with this book necessarily, but I want people to think about the, the, the possibilities of faith, um, how big they can be, how small, uh, and how completely unexpected. Thank you. Keep that microphone, because we're starting at the far end with the next question. Uh, I want to ask about your writing history. You know, was this something you started when you were a child? How much, how long did you write before you got to the first, what you would call success? Well, I, I'm a, I've always seen myself as a reader more than a writer. Some people who read me feel that same way. They think it's, it's, you should have stayed as a reader and not a writer. Um, no, I, I, I love to read from a very early age. What my, my, the specifics of my history is that my father was an avid science fiction reader and, and fantasy reader. And so he had paperback novels strewn all over the house for me to trip over as a six-year-old, seven-year-old. And uh, the kind of stuff he was reading, again, were very fantastic. So the covers were very colorful. And, incredible and, and such. And so um, I immediately started picking up the stuff he was reading and started reading it myself. So I love to read, love to read, love to read. And at some point at a very early age, I realized that I wanted to write. Um, one of the reasons that I admire Rod certainly so much is because of the impact that he's had posthumously on people. There are people that, that you know, he, he was dead for years before they ever picked up a pencil who are motivated by his work. And, and to me, that's, that's, a great, that's a great role to aspire to as a writer, right? To have that kind of power, even after you're gone. So um, I knew early on that I wanted to write. And I was trying to write short stories in, uh, the, in the science fiction market and submitting to uh, the magazines at the time uh, uh, Isaac, Isaac Asimov's uh, science fiction magazine, and, uh, Analog, et cetera, et cetera. And it never sold anything. And it wasn't until I was in my late 20s and decided to uh, move to mystery that uh, I got my first book sold. So, um, you know, if, if I can offer any one big piece of advice while I'm here on the panel, it's just to find what, find the book that's in you right now. Okay, a lot of times the book that's in you right now is not the one you want to write. 
you know, you're writing the wrong book. And, and, and so at some point you have to face the reality of that and, and make the turn to the book that you really have in you that you can knock out of the park. And it might not be the one you expect, but uh, it's the one you're, you're meant to write. Well, it was, uh, so my mother was encouraging me when I dropped my first submission into the mail and she said, now you know, dear, they don't allow you to be a writer until you've collected many rejection slips. And I believed her, and when I got that rejection slip, I was so happy, I was on my way. I put it on my wall, I can still see it on my bedroom wall. My first rejection, I got a whole lot of them after that too. But it was, uh, yeah, that was basically it that I kept, I guess, the first, I'd written one book back in 19, 68, 72, but when really writing books, I mean really <laughs> fleshed out books, came about after that story. Thank you. Okay. Um, I always had planned to be a writer, but I didn't quite get around to executing that plan. I got sidetracked by a 30-year career in education. I was an elementary school teacher, and then I was an elementary school principal. But I never gave up on um, that dream of becoming an author. So um, before that, I, I wrote a lot of grants for my school. I was a very successful, you know, getting grants. That was the extent of my writing. Um, before I, um, in my late 50s, my youngest son went away to college. I started taking courses at UC San Diego Creative Writing Program. And I wanted to write cozy mysteries. And I kept thinking that I wanted to do something with Olga Duncan's story. But as I mentioned, the, the story was just stranger than fiction. So I started to realize I, I would need to write a, a true crime. And in the, also during this time, I started going to a reading critique group at an organization called San Diego Writers Inc. It's a community of writers, lots of classes, and, and a read, and critique, read and critique groups. And I was taking um, personal essays sometimes for uh, the pages I brought, which were about my family and my father's crazy antics as a reporter. And then sometimes I would bring in uh, pages about this true crime. And one night the leader said to me, you know, why don't you combine those two things? I think you've got a book there. And I thought, well, you know, you know, maybe he's right. And so that was the, um, the beginning of the nine years it took me uh, to complete this book. Uh, so that's how I got started. Thank you. Well, like most of the other panelists here, I love reading. And I wanted so much to write something that would make whoever read whatever I wrote totally escape from reality and go into another plane, because I loved when books did that for me. So um, again, mysteries were the genre that I preferred at that time. And I write not exactly cozy mysteries because my heroine doesn't live in a small town. She's all over Southern California. She has some skills, whereas in cozy mysteries, they're usually amateur sleuths. There are no pets in my book, but um, she gets into some trouble. Uh, and Anyway, it's a little bit above your average cozy mystery. I look at it as a modern twist, perhaps, on cozy mysteries. And I didn't set out to write them. I didn't even know what cozy mysteries were, actually, when I first started. But I just wanted to write something that was total escape, that made whoever read my books 
you know, feel something. There's a lot of action. I want them along for the ride. And I wanted them at the end to feel some satisfaction and feel, I, I, some books I really enjoy, but they leave me with a bad feeling at the end because of the tone. I didn't want my readers to feel that way. And when I got that first scholarship to the San Francisco Writers Conference, so that's where it was, I actually wrote historical fiction and I was so depressed while writing it, that's why I never finished it. So I don't want to feel that way when I'm writing my books and I don't want my readers to feel that way as well. So that's why I wrote this. But I wanted to segue into something else if I could and that is I want to remind you all that there are no rules with publishing because I have a different publisher in my series from book one to two. And everyone told me you cannot switch publishers, but I did. And the way I did it was I liked my first publisher, and they even published my children's book, as I mentioned, but their focus was on romance. And so they never went to any mystery conferences, and I, I did, and I wanted my publisher present. So I heard of a call for a short story anthology, Best New England Crime Stories. I'd never written a short story, but I said, what the heck, 5,000 words, I can do that. And I did, and they accepted it. And then right about that time, they opened to novels. So I asked them, I just finished my second book, and I said, would you be interested in seeing the manuscript? And they said, sure. So I sent it to them at the same time I sent it to my first publisher. Meanwhile, I checked out my contract, and I felt like there was a loophole where I could get out. Showed it to an attorney friend who said, yes, there is. So when the new publisher, the second publisher, accepted my second book, we parted ways, but we parted ways again very amiably, because I did work with them afterward. And so that's how I secured a whole different publisher for books two through seven. I'm on book six, book six will come out shortly, but I just want you to know that anything is possible. You never know where you can go with your book. There's so much out there for you. Well, that is a happy story. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna start back at this end. And this is the 25, 30 years ago, this would be the how did you get your agent question. What was that moment where you went from I've been working on this too. This is going to be published. I am on the path. It could be, how did you get your agent? Sure. Well, this is another unusual story because I never solicited my agent. Um, I got my first contracts myself, but when book five came out, my publisher hired an agent to sell the audio rights. And so she and I communicated and she said, how about if I represent you on a different genre? And I said, sure, why not? So I'm in the process of writing a different genre book, not mystery, because she can't represent me in the mystery since my publisher has the contract for those. So again, I didn't solicit her at all, but I liked what I, the communications between us went so well, I never had to write a query letter to her. So it was, it was kind of a little bit of a miracle because I didn't know I wanted to write another genre until she approached me. So we'll see what happens with that. And the story of getting my agent is another example of anything can happen. Um, I found my agent right here at the Santa Barbara Writers Conference in 2019 um, through an advanced submission. Uh, I sat down with Charlotte Gosset and we had to exchange a few pleasantries and she said, send me a whole manuscript. And really, I almost fell out of the chair. My head almost blew off. I thought Kent Fetty would come out because I'd never even sent out a query letter. I'd worked on a lot of them. I'd gone to a lot of classes, you know, to, to how to write one, but I never actually sent one off. So, and with Charlotte, it wasn't, I sent the, the, the manuscript to her, took a while, she got back to me, and she said, you know, I really love this book, but I think I'm going to have to take a pass on it. She says, I think there's some problems with the pace of the book. 
But if you would like to work on that, I'll take another look at it. No guarantees. So I thought, well, shoot, I've got somebody interested here. Um, I'm definitely going to take a few months. And when, she, when I, I saw what she meant and uh, did a lot of rewriting and resubmitted it, and she said exactly what I wanted, and she offered me uh, a book contract. So Santa Barbara Writers Conference Advanced Submissions. That's the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's um, kind of a similar story in the way that I had this book, that first draft I told you about, and I went to the Santa Barbara Writers Conference first time. That was 1976, I think. And it was, uh, you know, there it was. There was the conference. There was Sid Stiebel, who's one of the teachers, and he was wonderful. He liked it, and he showed it to Don Condon, who was Ray Bradbury's agent. And yeah, it was fun, huh? And he showed him the book, and he liked it and signed to me and uh, didn't sell this book because I didn't finish. He said it needs a rewrite. I didn't have time to do a rewrite. So we just went on and eventually I did, as I just told you, do a rewrite. And now it's, it's how it should be. But I got, and then he, anyway, he talked to Ray Bradbury's and to his agent and from then on, it just was one lovely thing after another, and got to do all the all the big dances at some time in life. You would really think it's fun to do, and you forget how tired you get when you're going from show to show. Different now, though, you know, books are promoted differently. So, but anyway, that's the way it was for me. Uh, I've, I've had two agents um, in my career, so my second agent story is way more interesting than my first one. Um, the first one, in a nutshell, was the way I got my first book published was I won a contest. Uh, St. Martin's Press and the Mystery Writer, no, the, crime, the Private Eye Writers of America had a competition at that time, $10,000 first prize of publication of your book in the States and Great Britain simultaneously. And uh, on a lark, I entered my, my manuscript and, and won. And so, um, you know, went to all the conferences after that, and. It, uh, one of the conferences, I just went up to this agent. His name is uh, Dominic Abel. And Dominic Abel is like very popular in the genre. He represented a lot of people at the time. And I just uh, boldly went up to him and said, would you be interested in representing me? And he said, sure, let's talk. And that's how I got him. Like I said, it's a very boring story. It's terrible. Um, but the second story is way more interesting. So uh, cut to, I don't know how many years later. I lose track of time, but quite a while. And um, my career was kind of stagnating, and I was getting the sense that Dominic wasn't really giving all his all to sell me, primarily because he just was not that committed to my work. He, he found it fine, but it wasn't really you know, making him uh, terribly excited. So an unexcited agent, by the way, is not the best agent you want in the world. So I had this sense about him, and I had written this book that I was incredibly proud of, which I still think is like one of my best. It's called Cemetery Road. And uh, I, I had already decided, so I'm going to show this to Dominic. And if he's at all lukewarm about it, I'm going to make a move. I'm going to find another agent. And um, sure enough, I sent it to him. And uh, he basically asked me, um, and he's very British, Dominic. And he said, Gone? He said, um, What do you think this book is going to do for you? And I thought to myself, 
get me a new agent. That's what it's going to do. Um, so li literally on that call, I, 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 I basically told him, I said, you know, I think we've taken this relationship as far as we can go, and it's time to uh, just part ways. And he was, you know, he didn't fight me about it. You know, he's like, well, you know, come, come to think of it, that's not a bad idea. So, um, all right, so now I'm, I don't have an agent. I have a great book that I want to start shopping. And I have really got no idea where to go. I did not have an agent in place when I did this. So there's a lesson to be learned for all of you. Don't do something stupid like fire your agent. You don't have another agent waiting in the wings. It's just a dumb thing to do. But I did it, and uh, I had done a little bit of research, and I said, well, you know, I want to be represented by some of the, the best agents you know, out there. So who represents this New York Times bestseller? Who represents this New York Times bestseller? So I had two or three names in mind. And it happens that Michael Connolly is a very, very good friend of mine. Wonderful human being, by the way. If you think his writing is good, you should know him personally. He's a fantastic human being. Um, and I called him up and I said, I knew that he was represented by the Phil Spitzer Agency. And I said, Mike, I said, I just fired my agent and I'm kind of in a bind. Do you think Phil would read my book if, I sent, if you sent it to him? And he said, well, he said, I'll be happy to show it to him. He said, well, you should know, one, that um, he never takes any of my recommendations. He's, ne he's, never, he's never done it. He said, and number two, he takes forever to read. He, he takes forever to do the read. So he said, so send me the book. He said, but it'll be months before you hear from him. And I said, okay, that's, you know, that's, that's fair enough, why not? So I, I sent Mike the manuscript, that, and this might have been like on a Tuesday. And uh, Friday, I got a call. And the wife says, it's Mike Conley on the phone. And I'm like, Mike Conley? I just spoke to the guy. So I go and I pick up the phone, and, he, and, and Mike says, have you heard from Phil yet? And I'm like, no, it's, it's, it's been four days. You know? And, and he's, he's like, well, he's read the book, and he really wants to talk to you. You better call him. And I called him, naturally. And Phil Spitzer, another wonderful human being, by the way, he passed away uh, very recently. Um, he was so effusive about the book and how much he loved it and how, what an honor it would be if you could represent me in selling, trying to sell it. So needless to say, you know, I got myself off the floor and, uh, and signed with him. And so I've been with his agency ever since. Um, and so the, the real key there is the beauty of a really good agent is that he loves you and he loves your work, or she loves your work. And, and they, they make it known, not just to you, but to the people that they're trying to sell to. So in a, what you want an agent, more, almost more than anything else in the world, is you want them to be effusive about your work, about how much they love and appreciate what you do, how you write it, and how honored they are to represent you, okay? Believe it or not, there are agents out there like that. And that's the one you're looking for. That's the target, for sure. Wow, that you're right. That is a good story. <laughs> now I'm going to turn to the least favorite thing writers have to do with a book. Tell us about your promotion, other than being on an excellent panel at the best conference. <laughs> so why don't we start at the far end and? Uh... Okay. Well, it should be obvious to everybody by now that I don't know how to describe my own work worth a darn. I mean, I'm, I'm just <laughs> terrible at it. I, I cannot do it. Uh, I did some screenwriting work early on, and uh, 
I can't pitch to save my life, you know. So in, in terms of trying to describe what the story is and what happens in a in a efficient way, I'm pretty lousy at it. So I have to work on that. You're not asking an expert expert in this case, Lorelai. Um But um, you're right. I, I absolutely hate the marketing end. I really do. I, 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 it's it's like pulling teeth, getting me to to do it. But um, the tools at your disposal now are absolutely fantastic. Social media alone is a great way to market yourself um, and to get your name out there. And, and just the idea of um, commenting constantly in, in public forums, just so people know who you are and what you do, that's one great way, I think, to market your stuff. Um, I, like, I like visuals. So like if you know a really good artist that you know can actually uh, create visuals for your work when you're trying to get it out there, I think that's also a, a real good way of making yourself known to the readership out there in the world. Um, but I'm not a marketing genius, as you can tell. There are about two people that walked in here today and said, I know that guy. Um, and that's because my marketing skills could still use some work. It, it's, it's hard, but you, have, you, you do have to do it. You have to learn to do it. You have to get comfortable about it. Uh, in my workshop this morning, one of the things I said was that, you know, it's, 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 it's not discussed very, very much, but one of the things you have to learn how to do is read your own stuff and read it well. If you want to sell your work, be a great reader of your own work. You know, learn how to do that. Um, because a reading, uh, a good reading, signing, uh, it can sell a lot of books uh, and uh, generate a lot of word of mouth. Um, but if you can't even read your own work so that it sounds like it must read, that's, that's bad. It's, that's a skill you need to work on. That is a tough question. Um, long time ago, 100 years ago, when I had my first book sold, before this, um, it was easy because Don Condon um, had his connection. He was my agent, and he just had everything set up. And, oh, and when McGraw-Hill offered a contract to me, um, I accepted it, and the, they gave me fine bit of change for an advance. And I spent almost all of it on a publicist because it was worth every single dime of it. And they arranged everything. She was really, really good. And now um, she's long gone. And I don't know what. This came out on uh, just June the 4th. That was my 89th birthday, which was a nice present for me to give myself. And next year, though, I have to say, I'm going to be uh, writing a very sexy, um, yeah, elegantly sexy book, and I'm looking forward to that. And maybe, if I could finish it, that would be my 90th birthday gift to myself. And I think that would be pretty cool. Um, I, I forgot to mention that uh, Charlotte Gosset, the agent I met here, uh, got a book contract, me, contract for me with Pegasus Books, uh, Pegas the imprint Pegasus Crime. And I have to say that they were really good. Um, they got uh, arranged for me to do book signings and bookstores, podcasts, media interviews, um, a lot of things. But that ended after uh, a couple of months because, of course, they had other books that they needed to go on and publicize. 
But um, so I did have a, a, my own publicist for a little while, and lots of reviews on um, small kind of sites. But they also really helped. It was kind of a learning experience. So that when that contract was over, I had materials and information to use to promote my own book. And since then, I've done a lot of speaking engagements. I'm not crazy about speaking, but um, libraries, uh, done a couple of a Rotary Club, and a Kiwanis uh, schedule. They're, they're all interested in having speakers. They have speakers at least once a month. But the one thing that I can give advice to that's kind of easy is book clubs. Book clubs beget other book clubs, and the people read the books beforehand. I think most of them buy them. Some of them, I'm sure, check them out from the library. Um, but a, a good example is I was doing a book club in Northern California, and I had a book store that I was speaking at. And uh, the, the book club that I was up there to, to do their members had shared this information with other book clubs in Danville. So there were people from two other book clubs at this store where I was speaking, because they were going to have, their, their um, book club was reading in a couple of months. And then at the, the actual book club meeting that I went to, uh, somebody said, oh yeah, I told my sister about your book, and she read it, and she really loves it. And she lives in Chicago, and her book club is going to be reading it next month. So that's one thing that, uh, there's a lot of things, I, I agree with whoever said um, that getting on social media, Facebook has been a, a good way, getting a website early, um, that's a good way to publicize your book. But, um, and then the final thing that I, I wanna say for about, public, about publicizing it is about uh, two months after my book came out, Charlotte sold the film rights um, to uh, a, the publisher, the, the producers have not announced it yet, and they're the ones that get to do that, so I won't say the name. But they do have a successful show uh, on uh, Netflix right now, and they purchased the film, uh, an option on the film rights to develop uh, a limited series on a streaming service. And yes, I would like that to happen. Um, I didn't write the book thinking that, you know, anybody would want to make it into a film, but um, I see that as a good way of, of uh, promoting my book. I got in the contract that they would say in the credits that this was based on the book by Deborah Holt Larkin, a lovely girl. And uh, they also allowed me to be a consulting, um, a consulting producer on it. So I never expected that to happen, but, but that is something that um, your agent might uh, also uh, be willing to do. As an introvert, it's not my thing to, to public speak or to promote, and it hasn't been my thing until my first book came out, and all of a sudden, everything changed because I get to talk about something I'm very passionate about. I get to talk to other readers and writers, and that was enough uh, incentive for me to grab a microphone and speak. And so I, I enjoy it very much now. Um, and I want to give myself and Melinda Palacio, who's the Poet Laureate of uh, Santa Barbara, a plug because we are teaching a seminar on Friday about how to be your own best publicist and we're going to share with you everything we know and then some. I've got a couple of secrets in there that I'll share just for the people who attend our, our uh, seminar. But I want to say what I did before my first book came out was I watched other authors that were just a little bit ahead of me 
So not the huge authors, but those that maybe had two or three mysteries out. And I watched everything that they did, and I mimicked them. And um, I watched where they appeared, especially if they were in Southern California. And I contacted those same bookstores and got to appear those at those uh, stores as well. Podcasts, uh, radios, I mean, whatever I could do, I did it. Because my first publisher in particular didn't do very much. They didn't even provide a sell sheet or a press release for me. I did that myself by copying other authors that were larger. Um, and so I kind of learned, I think I do everything like this by the seat of my pants. I had no experience for any of the legal jobs I've ever had. I'm shocked that anybody hired me, but somehow I managed to talk my way into it. And I gained experience along the way, and that's how it was with my writing career as well. Um, I was going to say, what, oh, social media. That's a very good point, because you know, you meet, I have like 700 friends on Facebook. I, I don't know who they are. I maybe know about 15 or 20 of them, but they're other authors that I later meet at conferences, and you have that connection, which is wonderful. I have a newsletter that goes out quarterly, and you would not believe what I get out of that newsletter. I collect names at appearances. Mine will be downstairs at our signing, by the way. But those names follow me around, and even people I haven't spoken to in 10 years will show up just because they saw uh, an announcement of my newsletter. And as we all know, there has been a pandemic recently that kind of put a little bit of a pause on promotion. So I had a book coming out in October of 2020, and I couldn't get any other authors to appear with me. Nobody wanted to do anything. They were all kind of immobilized. So I put the word out there with my publisher's listserv. I said, anybody else having a book coming out in the fall of 2020? And three authors responded. And ever since then, we, we just clicked. Only three authors out of about 100 responded. We clicked. And since then, we've not only traveled virtually coast to coast, we now teach workshops together, too. Um, you know, all sorts of workshops on writing, um, I guess, uh, how to write, pretty much. But anyway, again, there's so much potential out there for promoting your book. Remember, you're writing because you're very passionate about it, right? You believe in yourself. I know you're, we're all riddled by self-doubt to a certain extent as well, but once you reach the end and you have your final manuscript, I mean, there's no other feeling like it. So why not go out there and promote your baby, you know, as much as you can? Anyway, you'll find it's a lot of fun when you do. All right, thank you. Grace has graciously given us five minutes to run over, and I want to get your questions in. So uh, I think we have a microphone that will come around. If I could get you all in one sentence to tell us what you're working on now, pitch your next book to this group of readers. Murderous Means, number six in my Southern California mystery series. The log line is, when resting in peace isn't an option. <laughs> I'm not writing, I'm promoting this book and uh, I will be talking Wednesday afternoon at Marla Miller's uh, Hooking Readers about more of the details about my road to publication and, and publicizing this book and I have bookmarks on the table on your Swag way out yeah, it's a love story but a different kind uh, it's a very strong woman uh, in a marriage and redefining herself and how what her life is going to be. There's hard to put this in a paragraph when I'm not that deep into the book. But I know that what's going to happen with her will surprise me because I believe that the characters can lead the script if you know how to get them in. 
and I, I would so much rather go into a meditation and ask for someone, a character to show up. And I would so much rather do that than try to design a character from over here and then make that person real. And it's, uh, it works for me, but um, I don't know, that's, that's, that's great. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. I'm microphone now. Okay. Um, I'm uh, working on a book called My Super, which is supposed to be the first in a series, hopefully. Um, and it's a serial comic take on Jack Reacher. So it, it, it's, if, if you ask the question, how in the world does Jack Reacher uh, keep his health insurance? Okay? That's, that's essentially the, the, the idea behind this series. He's a veteran. It's like, it's like Jack Reacher's going to you know, get physically busy with like seven guys. Uh, he's going to have some bills to pay later after that. And that's, that's the take on this series. Great pitch. Okay, thank you. Do we have questions? If we... How yes. about just your daily writing style? Do you, some people commit to word counts, other people, you know. What is your daily writing style? What's your, what's your approach? Does it vary so much? Okay, so I'll just read a very short uh, answer. Um, I, I've never had like a quota. I, I, it's not that I don't believe them, but, but I, my feeling about quotas has always been if you say I'm going to write four pages every day, what if it's four pages of crap? Then you've kind of wasted your time and your energy, right? Um, what I've always said is, my, my quote is, I write as much really good stuff as I possibly can every day. So sometimes that's a, a page, sometimes it's four, sometimes it's seven, but I don't fix a number on it for myself, primarily because of that, because I, I'm concerned that when you force yourself to write five pages, you may end up with four pages of junk. And you know, I, some people would argue that there's value in those four junky pages, but for me, it's it's just wasted energy. So I, I'm crazy when I write. I mean, this book, I as soon as I have had coffee in the morning, I'm at my computer. I'm there all day. I know I wouldn't advise this to my students, but I do this. I stay and I work and I work. And it doesn't always, it isn't always good, but it's always there, but it's written with passion. And I may be able to use it in the book, and maybe not, but it's going to be whatever feel, I feel that the characters, I'm not speaking too literally here now, don't worry about me, but I just think it's, <laughs> I do feel the characters take on a life of their own, and it seems, um, it's just a have to write. I mean, if during, I was so happy during COVID, everybody was <laughs> leaving me alone and I would stay with my computer and I'd sometimes get up in the night and write and I write obsessively and my social life goes to hell. I just do what the, where the passion drives me and stay open to the insights that of course are from your right hemisphere of your brain, mostly. So it's, um, yeah, it's all good adventure. So enjoy every bit of it. And if you're not enjoying something, say, what's wrong with that? Just go beyond it and have fun. Um, I'm a rewriter. I probably had nine or 10 drafts of this book. And I would write maybe four, th between three and five hours a day. And I would get maybe 100 pages, and then I would start all over. Because I didn't like the way the book started. And so by the time I was done, something that was in the first chapter of my first draft ended up in the epilogue. 
And so uh, it was just a lot of rewriting. So I'm about, I, I rewrote my first book about 100 times, and that's not an exaggeration. But I have another question. How do you write when you're working full time? That's another challenge. So I wrote while working full time for almost all of my books. And I just made time. I would get up with the first book at 5 a.m., write for about an hour, maybe two hours, go to work, write during lunch. I couldn't write at night because I was just exhausted. Second book was a little bit different. Third book, I got into the rhythm more, so it wasn't as difficult, and I couldn't get up at 5 o'clock anymore because my job became more grueling. But um, if I get stuck, the first draft for me, every time I write a first draft, I just want to quit. I loathe it with a passion. It's just... If anybody ever saw that, I would be totally embarrassed. But I keep telling myself, you know, it's going to turn out okay at the end, so keep on, keeping on, and I do. But um, I have a little hack with my first draft, and I'll go ahead and share it now. What I do is I keep rewriting that first chapter, and you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to edit along the way, or you'll never reach the end. But that first chapter, I rewrite and rewrite until I look at it and say, wow, you know, you can, you can do this. Even though the rest of it stinks, that first chapter is pretty good, so just keep on doing it. So I kind of talk myself into continuing. So whatever little tricks you can use to get yourself going, by all means do that. But it's, it's hard when you're working. Okay, do we have one more quick? Yes. Uh, for those who follow their characters around, um, have your characters ever pulled you in a direction that you didn't expect? And Always. I, my, in the first draft, no. They're all like paper dolls. They have no personalities. They, you know, they talk like each other. It's terrible. But once they start getting life to them, it's like, you know, they're, I have them in an apartment, my main character's apartment in a scene, but all of a sudden, they took off. She and her sidekick took off in the sidekick's VW and headed toward Riverside or somewhere. And I was thinking, where are they going? So yeah, they totally take control. And I love it when they speak like themselves, because in the first, as I mentioned, the first draft, they're not distinctive at all. So do not worry about that. Just keep on writing. But when they start talking like themselves, that's so exciting, because all of a sudden, I've got friends, imaginary friends with me. And it makes the writing life a lot less lonely. Um, my, the people in my book were real people and they were long gone by the time I wrote about them. But I had a picture of Olga Duncan, of my dad, and of Elizabeth Duncan, the killer, on my desk. And I sometimes would ask them questions and talk to them and uh, sometimes I heard answers. Well, it's a very strange thing I'm going to tell you now. But there are a lot of very, very famous actors that do terrible things to their bodies for the sake of the art. I mean, we're talking getting your teeth broken or having a surgery or doing awful things. And yet they're brilliant actors. They win all the awards. But they do to their, with their bodies what, as writers, I think we could just do with our minds. We don't have to do awful things. It just isn't part of the story as I see it. But the way I do it, sometimes I will start writing something and telling the truth. And at some point, it's, I stop the truth and I make it fiction, turn it into fiction. Not the same story, but continuing the story. 
and I, you get the feeling that it's just writing itself because I don't have a clue where I wanted to go, would want it to go. And I had never, I never write short stories. I'm not sure I would, would know how. Don't do that. But all of a sudden, I've got a short story that I want to really work because it's really good. Then I think, well, could it be a novel? And I think, well, maybe not. But yeah, it's, that's it. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, here we go. My own private microphone. That's pretty cool. Um, I, you know, I would say that plot, every now and then plot does that, where uh, I'm, all of a sudden the story took a turn that I didn't see coming, because it feels very natural to go left, right? Um, so I'm surprised that way, but characters generally don't. You know, I, I'm the master of my domain. You know, I, these people do what I tell them to do. I crack the whip and I say, but, you know, and if somebody's in a scene and doesn't belong, out you go, pal. You got to go, all right? There's none of this business of, you know, no, I want to stay. I, I, I want to be here for the next four chapters. No, you, you're gone, you know. I, the, the, see the name on the book? Gar Anthony Haywood, pal. That's, that's, that's not you. Get out of here. So, um, but I understand it. It differs from writer to writer. Some writers will tell you that characters, you know, tell them exactly where to go and how long to stay and what to do. Um, but I've very rarely had that experience where a writer, I mean, a character appears out of nowhere and then insists upon staying, that kind of thing. Um, no, because, you know, I created you, pal. You're not going to tell me what to do. That's not, that's not going to happen. Okay, speaking of cracking the whip, uh, Grace gave us five extra minutes, and we're two minutes past that. It's about to be three. So if we could all give our writers a great round of applause and thanks.